Latin for mission of God. And last week, as we did see from those first 11 verses in Acts, uh, that God's mission for the church was for us to be his witnesses in every place on earth to take the good news that although we're sinful and we deserve God's punishment, we deserve his wrath, uh, he has sent his son to die in our place, to take upon the, the, his justice upon us, what we deserve, upon his son, uh, so that we might be free and might be forgiven and made right with God. And that is the mission of the church that God gives us, beginning here in the Brazosport area, um, as we saw last week. Well, this morning we're going to be covering uh, verses 12 through 26 uh, here this morning. And uh, the title of the message, if you're a note taker, uh, this may help you, is Characteristics of Believers. Characteristics of Believers. So let's go to the Lord and ask him to do what only he can do as we begin to study his word together. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Uh, Lord, thank you for the privilege we have to read it, to hear it read, as we just did from Ty, or to study it, to proclaim it, to live it. Lord, thank you that we can trust in it. That is absolutely true. In every single word, every single sentence, every single paragraph, every single book of the Bible, it is true. But we also know that although it is true, without you we have no hope of truly understanding it. Without you we have no hope of applying it and living it. So Lord, now we come and ask you to do what only you can do. Lord, as that opened our hearts and minds your word to receive your word for this morning and Lord then you do with it in us what you will for your glory in Jesus name amen well I want to ask you a few questions this morning as we get started here uh, if you believe that when you push the gas pedal in your car and you want to accelerate that you believe not only believe you can accelerate but you want to, to accelerate what will you do you will do what you will push the gas pedal in your car, and you will accelerate. All right? If you believe that wearing a coat will keep you warm and you desire to keep warm, what will you do? You'll put on a coat. That's right. Some of us had to dust those off these last couple of weeks, right? Find those coats that we don't, you normally use down here in the southwest Texas, or southeast Texas, sorry, the Gulf Coast. So if you believe that chocolate tastes good, as I do, and most of you know that, and you want to taste chocolate, what do you do? You eat chocolate. Lots of it. All right. Well, how about this one? If you believe that all human life is valued by God and you desire to save human lives, what do you do? Share the gospel. There's lots of answers that we can... Um, give to that question there's lots of things that we can do if we really believe that god values human lives and i'm not just talking spiritual i'm talking physically that he values human lives we really believe that we desire that human lives be saved we'll do something about it maybe support the pregnancy help center which our church does and many do if you do uh, individually uh, support true life ministries that does care for those who are in need and, tr- and troubled support faith in action which also cares for those in need in our community. Those are ways that we can practically, because we do believe that God values every human life, they're all created in the image of God, that we we have an opportunity, if we really believe that and want to do something about it, we can do something about it. Or another way you could do that is you could hide 
Jewish people from the Nazis in a hidden room in your home, just as Corrie Ten Boom did in World War, during World War II. And she believed it, and her family believed it, and her sister believed it so much so that her and her sister were locked up in concentration camp, and Betsy, her sister, lost her life because she believed so much in the value of all people being created in the image of God that she was willing to give her life, to give her freedom, and then ultimately her life for that truth because she really believed it. The point is, is if you truly believe something, it will be evident in your life through your words and through your actions. We can say all we want, we believe in something, but when push comes to shove, we'll find out real quick if we really believe it. Not just intellectually, but do we really believe, are we willing to trust our lives in this belief that we have? Corten Boom was. Betsy was. The Lord Jesus Christ was. And as those who are believers, those who are followers of Jesus Christ, the call to, uh, to us is that things we believe in, they should be evident in our life. There should be characteristics of those who believe in our lives. Uh, James makes this so clear in his wonderful little book that we uh, worked through a few years back. In James chapter 2, verse 17, Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Words are cheap. Well, I just, James is just straightforward. He had to be a linebacker when he played football, if they played football, right? I mean, he's just straightforward. And, and just in case we don't have time to go through the whole passage, I did that um, a few years back. But in James 2.19, I love this. It says, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Intellectual belief in the Lord and all that Jesus did, all that he said, only qualifies you to be a demon. That's your resume. Hey, I believe this. I believe all these things said about Jesus. I believe that he did that. I believe that he was born of a virgin, that he lived a, a perfect life, and at 30 years old, he started his public ministry, and three years later, a bunch of people got mad at him, and they wanted to kill him. So he walked down a road called Via Della Rosa to a hill called Golgotha, and they crucified him. And three days later, he rose again, and then 40 days later, he ascended to heaven, as we saw last week. I, I believe all that. Well, great. That's your resume for being a demon. If that's all you, if that's it, if it stops right there, you're qualified to be a demon. But when a true person truly believes in the Lord and his promises, there will be certain characteristics that show up in that person's life. They can't help it. Uh, this morning we have a special guest. We a lot of special guests, but actually I was kind of confused with the date when David Dupree showed up. He's supposed to be preaching next week. David was one of the original elders here at Grace Bible Church and shared the teaching responsibility with me and another guy named Chuck Moore who now lives in Iowa. But Chuck used to say this. Uh, he, he told this story. He, would, he went somewhere, I don't know, it was Mexico or someplace where they had a lot of hot peppers. And one of the guys that he was with, uh, work with was always bragging about all the hot stuff that he could eat. So they got the, 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 the waiter and said, bring out the hottest pepper you got. And they bring out the hottest pepper, and this guy's like, yeah, give me that thing. So he just sticks that pepper in his mouth. And, he's like, and at first, he's no, no reaction at all. He's not going to give in. This is killing him. But all of a sudden, Chuck said, man, he just starts sweating. I mean, he's just sweating because he's just so hot. He's trying to drink everything he can because the reality is, reality is when that thing got in him, it couldn't help but come out. You couldn't help but notice. And when the Lord Jesus Christ gets in your life and you truly know him, you truly believe, you can't help but something be different about your life to be changed. And the thought that someone can truly know Christ, to truly believe in all that he has said and done, truly trust in what he has done for us, and be no difference is foreign to the Bible. It's not taught, it's not nowhere in Scripture. 
So let me ask this question. What does your belief look like? Or what does your faith look like? Same word. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, is there evidence that he is in your life? Does your belief or your faith on Jesus as your Lord and Savior manifest itself in your words, in your thoughts, and in your actions? Well, this, this morning as we look through these, at these verses, verses 12 through 26 of Acts chapter 1, we'll see some people who were true believers in the Lord. And we know this because they will display characteristics that show that they truly believe. So let's look here at these verses in Acts 1. I'm going to work down through these verses, uh, explain them as I go. I handle the narrative a little bit differently than I might do an epistle. So I'm going to explain them as I go and and point out some characteristics of these believers as I go and explain some other things happening here. And then at the end of our time together, I'm I'm going to come back and I'm going to challenge all of us to examine our lives in relationship to five characteristics of believers that we see in this passage. So let's be reminded of our context uh, here in in the first 11 verses. I won't go through them all again. If you want to listen to all that, you can go back and listen to it online, right? So uh, I don't have time to preach two sermons this morning. But I do want to tell you in verse 4, Jesus tells the apostles not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait till the Holy Spirit comes and indwells them. All right, so that's what he's told them, is I want you to wait here. Do not leave Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes comes and and um, when the holy spirit comes which we're going to see in acts 2 they leave jerusalem eventually but not yet he says stay here until he comes then in verse 8 8 jesus tells them their mission after the holy spirit does come and indwell them look there again with me verse 8 which is the outline of the whole book of acts but you will receive power when the holy spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in jerusalem and all judea and samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth or the remotest part of the earth Then in verses 9 through 11, Jesus ascends to the Father, and the apostles are gazing up at the sky. And I really think that Peter, James, and John were leading the way and gazing up in the sky because they had seen something similar to this in the transfiguration. Whoa, this is kind of familiar. And Jesus came back. Jesus wasn't wasn't just glorified before them, but in, in, in this glorified body before them, he was that, but then he came back and he was like with them as he always had been. But this was different. They were gazing, and there's an expectation, I think, for them that he's not really going anywhere. This is something similar. And all of them are gazing with this look that he's going to come back. And these two men, these angels, say, stop looking there. Look there at verse 11. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking in the sky? This Jesus who's been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. In other words, he said, he's coming again. So between his ascension and his return, be about the mission. I just told you what you need to do. So there is going to be a time, all right? He's going to come back. But between now and then, you're to be about the mission of getting the gospel out to the whole world so that people can believe, so that people can become followers of Jesus Christ. So basically they said, do what you're told. Do what you're told here. Don't just stand here. So... Let's find out, do they do what they're told? Do they obey what they've been instructed to do? Look at verse 12, and we'll read down through verse 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. 
These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brothers. So the first thing I want you to see here is they obeyed Jesus. Look at that. Look what it says. It says, then they returned to Jerusalem. Remember in verse 4, he told them, stay in Jerusalem. They obeyed him. They did exactly what they were told. Well, they had to take a little journey back, though. It says that they, had a, they were at the Mount of Olives, and a mount called Olivet, and, which is near Jerusalem, and they, they took a Sabbath day's journey. What in the world does that mean? Well, you can go read in the Old Testament, but you basically were, it's, they talk about cubits, 2,000 cubits, which actually equal about three-quarters of a mile, right around there, 0.7 mi- uh, miles um, or 1,100 meters. It's about equivalent if you're a meter person. There's a le- those are your meters, okay? I can't give you inches or centimeters, all right? That's all I can give you. But it's because that's as long as you're allowed to walk on the Sabbath. So that's what it says, a Sabbath day's journey. You're thinking, a Sabbath day, they should have been able to walk a lot farther than that. That's all they were allowed to, at least in the Jewish custom uh, and the Jewish law. This was, was, it actually wasn't the law. It was the law that was added on to it later. But uh, this was about as far, again, as you could walk. The key here is I want you to see is they obeyed Jesus. They obeyed him. Why? Why would they obey him? It's obvious. Because they believe what Jesus had said concerning the Holy Spirit. They really believed that he was going to send the Holy Spirit like he had promised. We want through the Gospel of John, the whole upper room discourse, the majority of it is about the Holy Spirit. If you want the Gospel of the Holy Spirit, that's the Gospel of John. And he promised he was going to send him. Now he tells him to wait in Jerusalem until he does that. And they, why did they obey? Because they believed what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. They believed his word. And this is a characteristic of those who believe. They obey. People who believe, obey. It goes hand in hand, if we really believe. And they really believed. They, they, these guys were transformed, even without the indwelling the Holy Spirit. These are the same guys that tucked, tailed, and run. We looked at that last week. Every one of them, except for John, eventually showed back up at the cross and was there with Jesus' mother. But they all tucked, tailed, they ran. They were scared to death. And yet here, after Jesus comes and he'd risen again, we saw that he appeared to a lot of people multiple times. And I think he appeared to the the apostles multiple times. All of a sudden, there's this renewed faith in them. And they're willing to do what Jesus said. They obeyed because they believed. Now look at verse 13. It says, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. uh, And and, and it gives the list of uh, these 11 guys. Uh, Judas, of course, Uh, Judas Iscariot is not with them. We'll see what happened to him here in a second if you don't already know. But we're unsure about this upper room. We're not sure if this is the exact same room where they had the the first Lord's Supper, the last Passover. That's unclear. It's not, it doesn't say that for sure. That's a good possibility, but it doesn't change the meaning of the passage. Some people make a big deal about this was the exact same upper room when Jesus told them that he was going to go away and die on that last day, and then that's exactly where the Holy Spirit came to. You know, whether he came in that room or not, he came. Okay? So let's not make a big deal about the upper room. Um, verse, uh, verse 14 also tells us that others joined them in this room. They mentioned the women and the Mary, Mary the mother of Jesus, and, and with his brothers. So there's some other people beginning to join them. And, and they're waiting too. And I'm sure they passed on this command by Jesus to, to wait until the Holy Spirit comes. Now notice in, at the beginning of verse 14 what it says they were doing. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Notice first that that phrase, with one mind or with one accord. A lot of the translations say with one accord, um, with one mind. Uh, It's it's pointing to the fact there's unity. Uh, There was unity in purpose with with these 
people gathered, these, these followers, these believers of Jesus, there was a unity in their purpose. Um, they didn't have their own agenda. What's your purpose? What's your purpose? What's your pur- they didn't have to ask. They all had the same one. They're all together. Why were they unified? Why were they together in their purpose? Because they believed what Jesus had said concerning the Holy Spirit and their mission. That your mission will be this. That you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the remotest part of the earth. They believed that was their purpose. That was why they were here, to do that. They were just waiting on the Holy Spirit. They believed. So why were they unified? Because they believed. And this is a characteristic of those who believe. They are unified in purpose. Now look at verse 14, the, the, the other phrase. And were, these people who were unified in their purpose were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Some translations say they were constantly devoting themselves to prayer. You could say they were consistently devoting themselves to prayer. They were committed to praying together. Why were they devoted to prayer? Why were they committed to praying together? Well, because they believed what Jesus had said concerning the Holy Spirit mission. This is like the same answer every time, right? So if I ask that question again, you, uh, why, did they be, why did they do this? You're probably going to answer me. Well, because they believed what Jesus said concerning the Holy Spirit and the mission. When I, when I uh, ref upward basketball games, one of the d- d- deals when you're a ref, you've got to decide who gets the ball first. So you, I always tell them to choose the number between 1 and 100. All right? And the answer is always 77. And I tell them that every single time. When you have me as a ref, the answer will always be 77. And no one ever says 77. So when I ask you the question, why do they believe, please don't say, well, we're not sure. All right? Because they believe what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit and their mission. That's why. That's why. That they were unified. That's why that they were committed to praying together. You see, belief or faith fuels prayer. You want to write something down to remember this morning? You want to get one thing. Faith fuels prayer. Faith fuels prayer. I believe that um, uh, these people were praying that the Lord would fulfill the purpose from which he promised. He just promised the Holy Spirit. What do you think they're praying about? I believe, based on other passages and principles in Scripture, that they are praying, Lord, send the Holy Spirit. We're waiting. Please send him now. We can't wait to get going. Please send him. We want to be about your mission. But we need the Holy Spirit, and we're waiting here. Please send him. Please send him. Please send him. They were persistent in their prayer. One of my favorite passages of Scripture uh, about prayer in all the Bible is, um, is found in Daniel chapter 9. Now, you can turn there. I'm going to bring up a few verses from Daniel. But if you want to turn to Daniel 9, it's one of the prophets. And most of us know Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know the stories about Daniel. I actually taught. I'm trying to think about David, were you still here when I taught through Daniel? Or were you already gone? I waited for you to leave. I didn't want to get corrected all right but uh so i i, I taught through daniel as many years ago when we were still meeting in rasco uh, actually uh, back where we began to first meet but taught to daniel but i want you to look there daniel chapter 9 and i'll bring that up here for the rest of you um and daniel 9 so th- this this just teaches this principle that faith fuels prayer the belief fuels prayer now look at this in the first year of darius the son of ahasuerus of meeting descent who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. And you're thinking, man, this is boring. Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. I really don't care about his genealogy. A median descent. Who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, or the Persians. Um, 
just rich, isn't it? It is. Look, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books of the number of the years, which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So we see the result. He's in fervent prayer. Why? Well, let's go back, and some of these words actually have meaning. Darius, who... Uh, was uh, who, who was the, the king of the Persians or the Chaldeans who knocked off? You hear when we were going through Habakkuk, we learned about this about about the similar time or after this that after the Babylonians came and knocked off uh, Jerusalem and took them all in captivity. The last wave was 586 BC. Okay, the first wave was in, in 605 in 597 586. All right, then guess who became at, who who knocked them off? Well, here we are, Darius. Uh, who was the Persian king or the Chaldean king, came along at, listen to this, 538. So let's go back to the first wave when they were taken into captivity, the southern kingdom of Judah, 605 to 538. How many years is that? If you count 605, it's about 68. Okay? As sometimes people count years. You can even count even, even 69. So it's close to 70, isn't it? So he's reading, I love this, he's in the word of God, he's reading Jeremiah, and he's reminded from God's word that God said that he would rescue them after 70 years. Daniel gets excited. He looks at his watch or his calendar or something that tells him, it's, this is time, this is in Darius' first year, we know history outside the Bible, for sure. we know that in 538 he began to reign. In his first year, we know that. So it's almost 70 years, and Daniel goes, oh my goodness, God promised us. So what's he do? He begins to pray according to God's word. Why? Because he believed it. He believed God's word. His faith fueled his prayer. And he began to cry out, God, please. And this is amazing, the passage in Daniel 9. First he confesses for three-fourths of the prayer. And think about our prayers. How much do we confess our sin? He does three-fourths of it. All right, And then there's a little bit of asking at the end, and it's all for the glory of God. But that what fuels his prayer, he, prayer is he believes what God had promised. And that's what these early believers in Acts chapter 1 are doing. They are, their, their prayer is based upon their fact they believe what God had promised. So this is also a characteristic of those who believe. They are devoted to praying together. They're devoted to praying together. Now look with me at verse, beginning in verse 15. And we'll read down through verse 22. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brothers, a gathering of about 120 persons were there together and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem. So in their own language, that field was called Hekeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Therefore it is necessary that the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must be Come a witness with us of his resurrection. Let me just say something real quick because I'm not taking your time to do this and you want to talk about this later. I'm just going to say something real quick. In order to be an apostle, they're going to get a replacement apostle here. In order to be an apostle, you must have been on scene 
all right, here. They're saying there's one exception to this later with Paul, but you must have been with them from the beginning of John the Baptist, all right, all the way up until now. So there, can there be any more apostles today? Answer is no. All right, just in case you're wondering it. So when you tell people say they're an apostle, maybe they're an apostle of the church, means they sent one of the church, I'm there. But they're not one of these apostles. An apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we have 66 books and not 67. There's not going to be more scripture because we don't have an apostle to, to, to rectify that, to certify that that is from God. All right, so no extra charge for that. Just kidding. All right, but I want to do this because that's not the main point, but a lot of people ask that question, so I want to ignore that. But here, here's, here's what happens. Peter stands up and he says something. As always. Right? If you know much about Peter, he's always saying something. Most of the time, before this point, except when he said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, usually it was open mouth, insert foot. That's how Peter worked. All right? And it's how often I work, too, shamefully. But other than that, and even after he said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, the very next scene is he's rebuking Jesus because he says he's going to be crucified. So there's, there's, he's usually just, this is part of his deal. So he's going to open his mouth here, and actually this is going to be good, okay? Um, but before we look at what Peter said, let me remind you what Jesus said to Peter right before he betrayed him, right before he denied him three times. Look what Luke chapter 22, verse 31 through 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, and once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter is now strengthening his brothers. I believe this is the first fulfillment of what he said for him to do. When you, when you have returned, first of all, he knew Peter would return. But when you have returned, when you have once turned again, strengthen your brothers. And the words that he say, it says here, strengthen his brothers. Isn't that awesome? God's never wrong. And Peter obeyed the Lord. Another it's characteristic of those who believe, and Peter believed. He stands in front of these apostles and others. Possibly, it says 120 people here, and uh, and basically says this: We must act on God's word. That's what he's saying. I'm just summing this up for you. I'm going to show you that in a second. But he's saying we must act on God's word. Look at verse 16. It says, "The scripture, the phrase here says, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas." This, first of all, I want to mention this. This points to the divine origin of scripture through human authors it says the holy spirit foretold through the mouth of david god the holy spirit one of the three persons of the one being god for three persons of the trinity god the holy spirit told through the mouth of david it's a divine origin through human authors and this particular one is david the whole betrayal by Judas was foretold by God's word. All of it. Jesus is like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. I can't believe this happened. And really, the, the apostles, if they would have been enlightened to the word at the time, they would, they, they, they would have known this beforehand. They didn't. But they would, oh, I can't believe this happened. They should have believed because God foretold in his word this would happen. Uh, and, and, and quite detailed, as you hear, a little bit maybe too graphic for some of us. That his gut spilled all over the place. All right, don't don't get a little woozy. We'll move past that. All right, but it's pretty detailed of what what Luke, as a doctor, maybe that's the reason why he shares in detail. I love what Derek Thomas. He's a pastor and he's also a professor at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary. He makes a great point as to the detail of Luke's account of Judas's death here in relation to Matthew's account of this. 
So when you put them together, and he just kind of sums it up, I think he does a great job. And let me read what he says. This, there's a parallel in the Gospel of Matthew, and one needs to join together sort of the frayed edges of Matthew and Luke. In putting those pieces together, we discern that a field was purchased by the money that Judas had given back to the priests because of his guilt, and the priests went and bought this field. It was called the field of blood, probably because it was bought with blood money. It's given here in the Aramaic language called uh, Hecladama. Judas hung himself. His body, his corpse was... Warning here, okay? His body, his corpse was there probably for a considerable amount of time until the branch of the tree on which it hung himself broke, or perhaps it was cut down. And because of the extensive decomposition, when he fell to the ground, his body burst open. So why is Luke giving us these details? I think to underline the historicity of it. To underline, because Luke is a historian... And he's telling us this deed, this event, actually happened. That's what he's telling those who are going to read. Remember, part of the purpose of Luke, I mean, this is, I say Luke because Luke wrote it, but it's really like Luke 2. That's what the Acts, Acts is. It's Luke 2, or Second Luke, because he's just continuing what he told in his gospel. One of the purposes is that those either who do believe will be encouraged, and those who don't believe will believe. So he's given some background history that this really happened. You can go check the facts that it happened. And I would add uh, something else. It happened also according to Scripture. Not only did it happen in history, but it happened according to Scripture as evidence. Again, by verse 20, look at verse 20, the phrase that says, For it is written in the book of Psalms. What Psalms? I'll give them to you. Psalm 69:24. Write down the number first. 69:24, 41:9, and 109:8. And that's what these, these quotes are um, coming from, is from the Psalms. Yes, the death of Judas, the fact that he died, it required a replacement to be named. That was, it needed to be a twelfth, all right? But more than that, God's word required it. Not just the, the, the circumstances that he killed himself and he was no longer, but the fact is that God's word required it. Therefore, Peter led them to take action. Why did they take action? Because they believed. That's why they took action. They believed, yes, and the Spirit was coming and the, and the mission that God gave them. They also believed in the authority of God's Word. Peter says, it is written. It's because it was in, given in the Psalms through David that all this would happen. And that there's going to need to be, an, there needs to be a replacement here for Judas. This is all preordained by God that it would happen and foretold in His Word. They did this and they took action because they believed in the authority of God's Word. This also is a characteristic of those who believe. They act on God's word. Now look at verses 23 through 26 this morning. So they put forward two men called, uh, men jo- Joseph called Barabbas, Bar- Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. Matthias. Uh, we've got one guy with three names and one with one. All right, we've got Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice. He must have been from Kentucky. All right, and I can say that because I'm from Kentucky, okay? Got a few extra names. We have a James Robert in our house. Uh, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you Lord, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. So two men are put forward. Now, we don't know. There's 120 people here at least at this time we don't know exactly who put them forward maybe the, uh, the 120 they said these two guys seem pretty good we, we don't know exactly how that happened we just know that two men were put forward they give their names 
to who's going to be the new apostle. But I want you to notice again in verse 24. Look there, this is, this is key. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these you have chosen. Here's the fact. The Lord had already chosen who it was going to be. The Lord wasn't going, okay, which one? Matthias or the guy with three names? I'm not sure. No, he knew he had already chosen. They were not praying to get the Lord to decide, but to seek his will, to have the Lord show them the one he had chosen. When we seek God's will in prayer, it's like a boat being connected to the shore with a rope, and you sling it out there. Maybe, you la- maybe you're a good cowboy. You can lasso that thing and get it on the post right there, and your boat's still, let's say, 50 feet from shore. That's a pretty good throw, isn't it? Maybe some cowboys in here could do that. All right? Danny Keir probably could. Your dad could probably do that, couldn't he? All right. All right, so... So they rope that thing, and you start pulling that rope. So let me ask you a question. Is the shore coming to you, or are you coming to the shore? You're coming to the shore because the shore doesn't move, and God doesn't move. He draws us to him. We are praying to him and seeking his will. We're not saying, okay, God, come over here where my will is. We're saying, God, we want to be hooked up to your will, and I'm going to pull, and I'm going to get as close to your will as I possibly can. I need to get in your presence so I can know your will. And that's why they're praying. So they can be aligned to God's will. We seek God's will, not ours. All right, how about the matter of casting lots? Oh, yeah. That's another one to ask a lot about this passage. This was used in the Old Testament to help determine God's will. All right, they did. They cast lots, and it could be pieces of, uh, a lot of different things, pieces of wood and, or bone or these kind of things that would land a certain way. It would help them determine God's will. And you think, that's so weird. Did they get the dice out too, right? And in and, and some ways, that's what people think of this as. And, and in some ways, there was some truth to that, not that, that they were it was doing it by chance. This was, in, in the Old Testament, one of the ways to discern God's will. But listen, here was the heart always behind this. In Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Somehow, and I do not understand it, I can't explain this, somehow... In the process of discerning God's will in certain areas, they used lots. And somehow God was clear with that. That's all I can say. But let me say this too. The Lord was in absolute control. It was not by chance that things landed like they are, like, like they did. And, and this is the last of account, the last account of lot casting in all of Scripture. It's also before the Holy Spirit came, listen to this, to indwell the believers so they can know God's will and his word. Before this, they did not have the ability without Jesus there telling them, this is what it means. And now, like never before, the Holy Spirit will indwell them, and he will give them the wisdom to understand his word and understand his will. Why would they need lots? Why do we need lots? We don't need lots. We don't need dice. We don't need to throw out a fleece. That actually, if you want to go study that, that actually shows a lack of faith in God when he threw out, threw out his fleece. And So um, we don't need those things. We've got... The Lord, the Holy Spirit living in us, and we have his word in front of us. So don't cast lots. We're never instructed in the New Testament. In, and, this, and this is another important thing about Acts. Acts is descriptive first, not prescriptive. The epistles are prescriptive. They tell us what to do, how to live out the principles in Acts. Now, there are some things in Acts, when you line them up with the epistles, that are prescriptive. But first, it's descriptive. It describes what happens. Not necessarily what always to do. And we never see lots the rest of the New Testament. And we don't need them because we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us to enliven our hearts and our minds to the Lord Jesus Christ so we can know his will. Isn't that good news? 
So throw your lots out on the way out. All right. The key here is the believers sought God's will. Why were they seeking God's will? Because they believed. They believed God had the answer. And they wanted to know what it was. That's why they sought it. Because they believed. And this too is a characteristic of those who believe. They act on God's word. So here's my question for you this morning. How about you? How about you? When we think of these, these five characteristics of believers that we've seen in this passage, how about you? First of all, believers are obedient to God's word. Are you? Is that characteristic true of your life? Of my life? Do we obey his word? We're getting ready to have four people be baptized. Why do you think they're going to be baptized? Because they do believe what God has promised and they do want to obey God's word and Jesus said he wants us to be baptized as believers. That's one of the evidences that we believe and that we want because that we want to obey and one of the very first steps we can take as a believer is to be baptized by immersion as a believer. How about this? Do you obey the Lord, guys, in this one? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. Do you obey the Lord? And please understand, I'm not talking about perfection. I say this often. I'm, ta- often. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about direction. The direction of your life, do you seek to love your wives as Christ loved the church? Ladies, do you lovely and humbly respect and submit to the, 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 the authority God's given your husband as he follows after Christ? Do you? Do you obey God's word in that? children do you obey your parents as in the lord not perfection but direction how's that going do we obey the lord when it comes tax time are we honest do we actually file income tax do we are we honest when we write it down do we put all the stuff we're supposed to put in there do we obey the lord do we obey the laws of the land 55 or 65 i don't know Romans tells us that the, 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 the government was given to us as an authority as a, as a hand, from the hand of God. That we're to obey government, the government as long as it didn't ask us to sin. We could go on and on. Now, you probably want me to stop, right? But the issue is believers are obedient to God's word. That's one of the characteristics. Secondly, believers are united in purpose. They're unified or united in purpose. Are we unified and united in purpose? I hope so. He's called us to be his witnesses. In Jerusalem, Lake Jackson, Clute, Richwood, Freeport, Angleton, Bradsport area. In Judea and Samaria, Texas, United States, and the remotest parts of the world. And all the other continents. Are we obedient? Are we unified in our purpose of being witnesses of his grace through his son Jesus in the whole world? Thirdly, believers are devoted to praying together. Are you? Are you devoted to praying together? We have many opportunities to do that. We have our life groups. We have men and women's um, studies going on. We got one, people meeting one-on-one. They can pray together. We come together corporately uh, we, to pray together. And specifically, uh, um, we, we come together quarterly with, with our, our um, remind me the name, at 1-8, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Jared. At 1-8, we come together and we pray together because that's the characteristics of those who believe. Fourthly, believers act on God's word. They take action 
when it says to take action. Just as we saw in this passage, Peter said, we do this, but we've got to do this because it's in God's word. We want to obey God's word as it related. We want to act upon it because it's from God's word. Fifthly, believers seek God's will. Do you? When you need to make a decision, where do you go to find out how to make a decision? You turn on the TV and listen to the talk shows? Do you read the newspaper? Do you read the latest, greatest book on that? Or do you, calling on God, ask for the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells you as a believer, go to his word, look for principles and precepts in his word, Ask godly people who also point you to his word. Begin to look around you and interpret your circumstances based upon the word of God. These are ways that we understand God's will. Do we do those things? Do we rely on God who wants us to know his will? He doesn't want to go, I'm trying to hide it from you. He wants us to know it. Do we seek his will? That is evidence that we believe. We truly believe he has the answers that we need. So why do we do these things? Because we what? Believe. We believe. Those are characteristics of those who believe. Now let me ask this question. Do you believe? Here's what I mean by that. Do you believe? Do you believe that God created this world? And he created you for his glory. That your purpose in this life is to glorify God. To make much of him. And that the Bible also says that all of sin and fall short of his glory. We don't do that. We don't make much of God. And the Bible says it's called sin and it separates us from God because we don't do that. We don't want to do that because we want to glorify ourselves. And the Bible also says this, that he made him who had no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteous of God in him. He sent his son to die on the cross. The cross we deserve, the death we deserved for our sin. To die in our place. And if we would quit trusting in ourselves, turn from the deceitfulness of sin, and turn and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for what he has done for us to be our Savior from sin, he will make us right with him. Do you believe that? Not just in your head. Have you trusted your life on that? Entrust your life on that? That's the beginning of true belief right there. And then he gives you the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden you can understand all this other stuff that you can believe in and trust your life on. My prayer is if you don't know him, that you'll do that. You'll turn from trusting yourself and trust in his finished work through his death, burial, and resurrection. If you do, I want to challenge all of us by his grace. Let's believe. Let's act and speak upon what we say we really believe. Just like these people are getting ready to do here in a few minutes. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you for not only the example of characteristics of those who believe, but also, Lord, the power of to believe, the power to act upon our beliefs that that comes through uh, the Holy Spirit indwelling those who know you.